a tenderness of spring took my hand and walked with me and bathed me in the showers of her love whatever dream i dared virginia made me know she cared with loveliness as gentle as a dove her tender love can't see the wild is in the depths of me and who would dare to hurt the gentle kind but no woman can control the burning wild a storm this is interchange on WFHB our opening song is the whirlwinds of my mind by Farron Young our show today the world at large Elliot Weinberger on everything The tenderness of spring took my hand and walked with me And bathed me in the showers of her love Whatever dream I dared, Virginia made me know she cared With loveliness as gentle as a dove Her tender love can't see the wild is in the depths of me And who would dare to hurt the gentle kind Again, that's Whirlwinds of, a, of My Mind by Farron Young. All of our songs tonight feature the whirlwind as a kind of tribute to a central essay called The Vortex, written by our guest, Elliot Weinberger, and found in his serial essay, begun in 2007, called An Elemental Thing. That work continues through the book Oranges and Peanuts for Sale and on into the essay collection that comes out today, The Ghosts of Birds, all from New Directions. This is from the publisher description of The Ghosts of Birds. This book offers 35 essays by Weinberger. The first section of the book continues his linked serial essay, An Elemental Thing, which pulls the reader into a vortex for the entire universe. Here, Weinberger chronicles a 19th century journey down a Colorado River, records the dreams of people named Chang, and shares other factually verifiable discoveries that seem too fabulous to possibly be true. The second section collects Weinberger's essays on a wide range of subjects, some of which have been published in Harper's, New York Review of Books, and London Review of Books, including his notorious review of George W. Bush's memoir, Decision Points, and writings about Mongolian art and poetry, different versions of the Buddha, Bela Balaj, Herbert Reed, and Charles Reznikoff. We'll also take this opportunity tonight to talk about his master course on the art of translation, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, first published in 1987 and now updated with more ways. Elliot Weinberger joins us by phone from New York City. Welcome to Interchange, Elliot Weinberger. Oh, thank you, Dick. Uh, um, Elliot, I, um, I, I, I have problems with this program generally because you've done so much. Uh, I, it's hard to focus the program in some sense, and I thought to call it the vortices of Elliot Weinberger, let it rip and see what fell out. Uh, but the world at large seemed appropriate, and it comes from a brief preface you wrote for an edited collection of international poetry called World Beat, and I'll read the last paragraph of that uh, preface. All translation sends the essential message that one's own culture is not enough and that the way to avoid intellectual stagnation is to learn from other ways of thinking about, perceiving, luxuriating, and despairing in the world. This book appears at a moment when the United States is particularly self-absorbed. Less than a fifth of its citizens have passports. A third of its high school students cannot find the Pacific Ocean on a world map. Its rulers dream without embarrassment of global empire. Poetry, though not the salvation of the world, presents a small alternate model, an endless net of individual 
individual dialogues between writers and between writers and readers, regardless of governments, nations, and communal identities. Its books are a way out of one's world and a way into the world at large. And I'd guess that describes your motivations as a writer, a literary, literary artist, polemicist, even a translator. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I should say that that was written during the uh, during the Iraq War and during mm-hmm. the the, uh, the Bush administration. I think we have uh, more of an international perspective, at, you know, since that since that time. But certainly, it's true that 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 um, a, civ- a, a civilization sort of dies if it only listens to itself, and you you constantly have to have uh, foreign influences and getting new ideas from abroad. And, and so forth. Um, and a literature, if you look at uh, m- most of the great innovations in literature, all happened because they picked up something from, from, a, uh, from a foreign literature. And this, of course, uh, is true of so many different things. Uh, I mean, for example, I just read today that, that all of the Americans who won the Nobel Prizes in Sciences this week were all immigrants. Hmm. So we we const- you know we continually need to have these kinds of ideas coming coming from abroad to to keep our own uh, culture vital. Well, I think you mentioned somewhere in in many places maybe, but in, in one place I read the the uh, stagnation of uh, Chinese culture. I think past what was it the Tang Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, that's a that's a classic example. Uh, the, the Tang Dynasty is one uh, which is is truly a multicultural dynasty. Uh, after that, things get much more uh, insular, and uh, it, it has a, 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 a deleterious effect on on the uh, on the poetry. Hmm. So uh, let's talk about how maybe your best known, or at least uh, maybe your m- most work, perhaps. I'm not sure. I, I think of you as as an essayist myself, uh, having. Uh, um, encountered you, I think, first in Borges's Seven Nights, but I don't think I knew that you were the, like, I don't think I thought about you as the translator, which is part of the point, uh-huh. um, you know, the invisible translator. <laughs> so <Yeah>. that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a translator of Octavio Paz, Borges, um, Beidao, Vincente Huidebro, Homera Arigis, Cecilia Vicuña, Xavier Villarutia, um, among others, I suppose, but mostly Spanish and Chinese. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, just the the Chinese. Basically, I uh, I just translated one uh, contemporary poet, Bei Dao, but then I've also edited anthologies of of Chinese poetry, and I'm editing a series of books for uh, New York Review Books, which is on on classical China. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but and and most of my translation work was done. Uh, uh, actual translation work was done a long time ago. I haven't been doing that much translating hmm. in in recent years. But I certainly started off by doing quite a bit of it. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. My guest is literary and political essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger. His latest collection of essays is called The Ghosts of Birds. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to that classic of translating, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, if that's, you can correct me if that's not how I'm supposed to say that. Um, 
But uh, one of the things that, that comes out of that book is, is just the fact that translation is, is very difficult <laughs> and that it, it speaks to the, the character of the translator often, the character of the times, the context it's being translated into and from as well. And, and so it begs the question you know, about how we can make translations that um, perhaps speak as, as best as possible to the original. Yeah, well, well, everything is difficult, and and right. uh, translation is uh, being one of them. Um, that book, basically, which was which was um, published thirty years ago, the first edition, um, takes a, a four line poem by the the Tang Dynasty poet Wang Wei, and um, shows how this poem was translated many many different ways, uh, mainly in English, but I also throw in some French and Spanish translations. Um, in there, and it's a uh, the problem is is that uh, classical Chinese is this incredibly condensed language, and um, there's no tenses in the verbs, there's no numbers in the nouns, plural or singular, uh, there's no um, personal pronouns. So, for example, you could have a line of of poetry that says um, to go forest. Fox. Now, how do you translate that? I went into the forest and I saw a fox. I went into the forest and I saw foxes. You, you can go to the forest and you'll see foxes, or go into the forest and see foxes, so forth and so on. Um, so you have to, you have to somehow transfer, uh, translate that that um, density of the Chinese somehow into into English and still create something that's that's alive as a as a uh, poetry translation in English so it's curious um, over the years uh, you know people add pad pad them out some of some people are very minimalist and so forth and so on and how you how you deal with with um, bringing Chinese poetry into into English um, but on the other hand uh, it obviously works because Classical Chinese poetry has had this tremendous influence on modern American poetry. From the first book of, of modern poetry in English is actually Ezra Pound's Cafe, which is a translation of, of Chinese poems and was uh, uh, written and, and published during during World War One. And many many poets. Uh, I mean, it's been tremendously influential on on countless American poets from all the different different poetry camps because there's a certain kind of precise observation of the world, uh, a concision of language, um, and just a, a kind of different way of, of looking at the world that's, that's been tremendously influential. Well, you remark uh, that T.S. Eliot called it the invention of Chinese poetry in our time. Um, but also remarking that it, you know, Pound himself had no real understanding, or I guess I should say, no Chinese generally. Is that correct? Uh, well, in the beginning, yeah, he's working from this, these manuscripts that that he inherited, uh, done by the uh, a great Orientalist named Ernest Fenollosa. He's also a great collector of art. The Boston Museum is the Fenollosa collection mm. of Asian art. Um, and uh, Fenollosa was was studying Chinese poetry with the help of some Japanese scholars, and kept these notebooks where he's basically doing literal line word by word translations of mm. things. So there are mistakes uh, in the in the in the translation, but there are also mistakes that Pound intuitively corrected. 
um, later on, Pound kept studying Chinese and then went on to um, to translate Confucius. He translated the, the first um, Chinese anthology, the Book of Odes, or the Book of Songs. Um, and so he kept he kept going with Chinese because he thought it was the, the most perfect language for poetry. Hmm. Well, I think it's one of the, the interesting ways in which you tend to phrase things or you, you drop little interesting tidbits into what seems like just a basic uh, explanation of this particular book. You say, Pound's small book containing some of the most beautiful poems in the English language was based on a notebook of literal Chinese translations prepared by the Orientalist Ernest Fenelosa and a Japanese informant. <laughs> that's the, that's the part I always like those little those little hooks you have at the end of sentences frequently. <laughs> well, I mean, it's curious because you know uh, the the kind of interconnection is that Pound's uh, studying Chinese poetry basically invents imagism, the the, the poetry movement imagism, mm-hmm. uh, which was a kind of um, emphasis on on the on on the precise image in in the poem. Then you have this Chinese poet named Hu Xu in the in the in the early in the in the 20th century, who's in Chicago and uh, studying, and he comes across Pound's great imagist manifesto. He he writes his own manifesto in Chinese, which kind of creates a revolution in Chinese poetry um, to return to writing in the vernacular, to different ways of of looking at at poetry. So basically. Uh, who should discovers in American poetry what what Ezra Pound discovered in Chinese poetry? So you have this incredible mm-hmm. kind of loop of of, uh, of influences, which is how poetry always works. It kind of runs in these underground channels, regardless of of uh, what's happening in the larger culture. Mm-hmm. Well, you like particularly Kenneth Rexroth's uh, version of this poem. Yeah, I mean, Rex Ross uh, uh, was one of the most popular translators of Chinese, and he kind of re, uh, reimagines Chinese uh, nature poetry because he himself is, is someone who spent a, a great deal of time uh, it, out in nature and, and in the West. And it's a kind of um, recuperation almost of, a, of trans-Pacific culture, which is certainly something picked up by Gary Snyder. And, and uh, the idea that if you're in California, what you're looking, what you're looking out at is Asia. You're not looking at Europe the way uh, uh, those of us on the East Coast had done. Right. Uh, let me do uh, two things. Uh, let me read. Actually, let me read three versions, just because they're short and because it's interesting that they're they're kind of next to each other. One is by Rex Roth, um, and uh, one is by Burton Watson who is, uh, as you say, a particularly fine translator of classical Chinese and Japanese poetry. And then I'll skip over to uh, G.W. Robinson's as well, uh, only because it's interesting what you say about that translation and, and I guess the prevalence of that translation. So uh, Deep in the Mountain Wilderness is how Rex Roth terms this. You, uh, I think it's called generally, or you have it called Deer Park? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which I like that you said you picked it off a, a map in Illinois. <laughs> which is also amusing. Uh, so uh, Rex Ross from 1970, deep in the mountain wilderness where nobody ever comes, only once in a great while, something like the sound of a far-off voice. The low rays of the sun slip through the dark forest and gleam again on the shadowy moss. That's nice. Um, but it's very different than Burton Watson's Deer Fence. 
Empty hills, no one in sight, only the sound of someone talking. Late sunlight enters the deep wood, shining over the green moss again. You have a, I mean, are you able to like distinguish what makes those so different? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, Watson Watson is the the major Chinese translator, probably of uh, in any language. Um, he's a sinologist. Um, he's now well in his eighties. He's translated this vast amount of poetry, philosophy, history, everything. And um, the interesting thing about uh, about Watson is that he. Um, was very connected to uh, to American poetry. I think one of the problems with when scholars translate is that they know everything about the original, but they don't know about where the origi- where that translation is going, which is the context of if you're translating mm. into English mm-hmm. uh, contemporary English poetry. Right. Well, so uh, let's close then with uh, I'll close this segment with Robinson's translation, which you say published by Penguin Books is unhappily the most widely available edition of Wang in English. Uh, so this is hills empty, no one to be seen. We hear only voices echoed with light coming back into the deep wood. The top of the green moss is lit again. And you point out particularly that the change or I guess the use of we as the pronoun there has has really altered the poem. Right, right, because there's no we in the poem, right. and so suddenly uh, the poem is, is, is there's an empty mountain, there's nobody in sight, but you hear these voices. Suddenly by saying, we don't, we don't hear anyone, uh, then there's like this group that is, that is out, right. that is on a picnic. And like the family out for a picnic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest today is Elliot Weinberger, author most recently of The Ghosts of Birds, a collection of essays out today from New Directions. Weinberger is internationally known as an essayist and translator. His political essays primarily appear everywhere but the U.S. We'll discuss why later in the show. Our break music is by Roxy Music, and it's called Whirlwind. Stay with us as we talk with Elliot Weinberger about his serial essay, The Elemental Thing, when an elemental thing, excuse me, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Bloom Magazine. The editors of Bloom Magazine believe local businesses are endangered by online shopping, and they encourage you to shop locally. More information is available at magbloom.com.
Welcome back. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The World at Large. Our guest is Elliot Weinberger, essayist and translator, whose most recent book of essays hits the shelves today. It's called The Ghosts of Birds, brought out by New Directions. Uh, we ended our last segment talking about the New Directions update of the 1987 classic, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, uh, and there will be more ways in the updated version. Uh, and I wanted to ask uh, quickly before we moved on to An Elemental Thing and The Ghosts of Birds, um, uh, to to for you to perhaps relate a little bit about the the story that is included in Oranges and Peanuts for Sale about Rushdie's uh, satanic verses and how that's kind of a a mistranslation that got him into trouble or got the 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 actual title became the issue not the actual content of the book. Yeah, well, the the uh, the curious thing is that it's a um, the whole controversy around the uh, around the satanic verses and and what happened. Uh, with the you know riot, the fatwa against Rushdie, and the riots around the world, and so forth, it's all because of a of a, of a mistranslation or a misunderstanding. In that, uh, in the in the there are these uh, a few lines originally in the Quran um, uh, praising local gods of Mecca, which then uh, Muhammad uh, said was was actually dictated to him by by Satan, and then they were. Uh, uh, excised from the Koran because these were like false false lines. And uh, in English, uh, these lines uh, were were called the Satanic verses. They were named that by by nineteenth century Orientalists. But in Arabic, they are not uh, they are not called that at all. They're called the the little birds. And to translate this uh, when. Rushdie's title, the Satanic Verses, was translated into Arabic and and to and to other other languages, Persian and so forth, uh, Farsi. Um, the translation actually means the verses of the Koran are written by Satan. <laughs> so it's an incredibly blasphemous right. uh, title. So nobody had to read the book. It has nothing to do with the actual contents of Rushdie's book. It's that Rushdie was the author of a book that said that the Koran was written by Satan. Yeah, that's that's, that's, a, what, rough, that's, that's a rough mistake. The whole thing off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then uh, was the, the Japanese translator was um, stabbed was and that, killed? Was actually stabbed to death, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And another translator uh, was attacked, too, and so forth. But it, so the, the whole... The whole thing was a, the whole controversy was this kind of mistake of of, of translation. Mm. Well, I like uh, that's a really interesting. Uh, I guess it's anonymous sources is the name of that essay in uh, Oranges and Peanuts for Sale. It's it's very interesting. And and one thing you say about it is that translation's a trade like cabinet making or baking or masonry, a trade that any amateur can do, but professionals do better. <laughs> So, I like that. You do say uh, a trade whose practitioners remain largely unknown to the general public, with the exception of a few workers of genius. But you don't name those, right? 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 But yeah, you, but I, I, yeah, that's true. I've, there's a little more visibility of of certain translators, mm-hmm. but, but uh, so that you know that if 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 something is translated by certain people, that it's probably something worth reading. Well, you do share a, a translator's. Um, uh, I guess stage with uh, uh, was it a high school a friend of yours? Is that what uh, is Lydia Davis? Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she translates uh, Proust. Yeah, he's a translator of Proust and Flaubert, and of course a wonderful uh, fiction writer. 
and uh, it turns out that we actually went to high school together. <laughs> uh, another one of those vortices, I suppose. Uh, I, I will read this too because I just like the way it's the way it expresses what what translating is. You say um, uh, it's the greatest education in how to write, as many poets have learned. It's a it is a prison in the sense that everything is said and must now be reset, including all the author's bad moments, the vagaries, the repetitions, the cliches, the clinkers, while strictly avoiding the temptation to explain or improve. It is a prison or a kind of nightmare because one is in a dialogue with another person whom you must concede is always right. But it is, <laughs> that's a good one. But it is also a liberation. It is the only time when one can put words on a page entirely without embarrassment. And embarrassment, it seems to me, is a greatly underrated force in the creation of literature. The introspective bookworm happily becomes the voice of Jack London or Jean Genet. Translation is a kind of fantasy life. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a wonderful way to learn how to write. I mean, I certainly did that in high school. It's it's it, that was my education in learning how to write poetry because um, you're not you don't have that embarrassment of well, this is my poem on on breaking up with my girlfriend <laughs> or the death of my grandmother. Or something. Right, right. You you have to you've been given the 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 subject of the poem you've been given the poem and then you have to figure out the sort of nuts and bolts of writing poetry how you're going to rewrite that poem uh in english and so it's it's a, it's a tremendous kind of technical uh education for writing which um i i think is is more useful than uh you know a lot of creative writing courses hmm. well like you say it is uh, it is uh, an effort of work that you need to pay attention to those things um, so uh, I'll be honest, I, I sort of got into your writing uh, and knowing who you were because of uh, some uh, issues of Sulphur, uh, the magazine. I don't know when that journal, uh, early in the 70s and then into the 80s? Uh, yeah, it starts in the 80s mm. and ends in the 90s. Okay. And, um, and then, of course, you started your own journal, uh, Montemora, and... Uh, also had that same strong voice. It, it, it was a sense where literature became kind of a uh, bloody and contentious and vital in those journals to me. It seemed like there was always a kind of combat going on in there. Uh, yeah, well, I <laughs> guess there were a lot of disagreements. The, um, but I think that that's always healthy in, 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 uh, in literature. Uh, one shouldn't be too polite all of the time. <laughs> uh, uh, only, you know, only have, uh, you know, publish rave reviews of, of one another so it's it's good to have some 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 contention there you know and and um well why did you uh, end up starting montemora oh uh, well montemora i started montemora in the in the 70s uh, i think the first issue was 1975 and it was really at that mo uh, at a moment where i thought that a lot of the poets I most admired were not being published in any magazines. Mm. Um, people like George Oppen and Charles Reznikoff and Basil Bunting and so forth. Um, so I started my own magazine and uh, um, did it all myself for for uh, about seven years and published a number of books that went along with it too. Um, but those kinds of magazines have a have a have definitely have a, a short lifespan. And uh, and I stopped because I thought there were some other new magazines that would kind of pick up the uh, uh, take the, the baton in, in that relay race. And now I think um, at the moment the the, the little magazine uh, 
doesn't seem to have the uh, the influence that it that it once did. Everything is really on is on the internet now. It certainly is much easier to publish on the internet than to uh, than to do a to actually produce a magazine and try to uh, find subscribers and mm-hmm. so forth. You can have such a, a vastly larger audience uh, on the internet. So it seems that's that's where most of the activity is. The problem, of course, with the internet is that there's just too much content. I mean, there's there's too much almost, you know, yeah. to uh, to be able to sort through. In the era of the little magazines, there weren't that many magazines, and you had more of a sense of of what was going on. Right. Well, you get the sense even, <coughs> excuse me, from from magazines from the uh, you know the early part of the century, like others, um, you know the Kramborg uh, uh, Journal and the early poetry, and that there, it's kind of a strange thing to be going back into those early journals, early magazines, and reading. Um, what seem like, I guess, occasional pieces almost, like the poetry we have and we, we teach or that, you know, that comes to you in giant books of collected works. You know, if you go back into the little magazine, it has a different life there. Right, absolutely. And, and basically most of the interesting things that happened in the 20th century uh, happened in the little magazines and then filtered into the into, into larger audience from there. Um, you certainly didn't find out what was going on in literature in the 20th century by reading the New Yorker. You you found out by reading by reading these little magazines. And I think once one became known enough in the little magazines, then maybe the the New Yorker would pick you up. You know. Right. So um, no, that's 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 where all the action is. And and uh, and also I think that uh, that a golden age of literature is is dependent on is is a time when when the mediocre writers are really interesting, hmm. you always have great writers. Um, but when the the uh, the sort of B and the C list are also people of interest, and I think that that was true through uh, through much of the 20th century. Hmm. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. My guest is literary and political essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger. His latest collection of essays is called "The Ghosts of Birds." There's a, a chapter in An Elemental Thing uh, called Wind and Bone. It's not segment nine, I guess, or section nine. I'm just going to read it, too, because I like the way it begins. And again, with that little hook at the end, it begins 400 years from the fall of the Han to the rise of the Sui, continual warm, continual war, famine, floods, peasant revolts, millions of fleeing south from barbarian conquerors, the period of disunion, 29 dynasties in the north and six in the south poem written on the way to my execution becomes a genre. That's just, again, just, <laughs> just maybe it's a sad thing, but it, it, written in this, um, in this piece, it's, it's, it just makes me chuckle. Hmm. But um, the, let's talk about element, an ele- elemental thing because it moves us into the ghosts of birds as well. And as I said, I think, I don't know if, it go, if you go anywhere else with um, an elemental thing as a serial essay, uh, I, I mentioned the piece in or, uh, Oranges and Peanuts for Sale. That's the journey, journey on the Young Sea. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so an elemental thing you call a serial essay, and you're building on it. The Ghost of Birds has segments or selections or sections that are also part of that serial essay. What what makes that a serial essay, and how do you decide what goes into it? You've got lots of other essays that are of similar, I guess, a similar construction, perhaps. So how do you decide what goes into that? Well, I wanted to do, um, you know, in, in American poetry, you have this, this, 
the idea of the serial poem, the sort of long poem that can go on for many, many years or even a lifetime, such as the Cantos of Ezra Pound mm-hmm. or the Maximus poems of Charles Olson. Right. And, uh, and so I decided I would try to do something like that with the essay in that it's a, um, a series of essays where the subject matter keeps changing, but certain uh, motifs reappear, even certain phrases reappear, so there's a kind of circular nature to it, or fugal nature to it. And um, all of the essays deal with, with what I consider to be elemental things, the wind, stars, various animals, and so forth and so on. And uh, um, I decided to just kind of keep it going as a as a as a as a, uh, as, a as a long-term, open-ended open-ended project. Because the the problem with the 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 essay is is that it hasn't really had an avant-garde in English. Uh, we're used to many different ways of of writing poetry. We're used to many different ways of of writing a novel, but the essay. Uh, most people think of essays still as this kind of first-person narrative. Uh, I wanted to find out about this, so I looked into that. I talked to this person and so forth and so on, or a memoir or a travel travel piece, which is also first-person narrative. So what I've tried to do is kind of eliminate the first person and come up with different ways of, of presenting information that is... Uh, factually true, uh, true in the sense that, that somebody believes that it's true or somebody else has said that it's true, and uh, see what new ways I can come up with for, uh, for presenting that information. So sometimes it veers towards poetry, sometimes it veers towards, towards narrative fiction, but it's it all, uh, uh, the one rule that I stick to is that I never make up anything. Hmm. So I don't blur that line between fiction and nonfiction the, hmm. way, the way many people have done. So you have, um, uh, I guess, uh, something of uh, uh, W. Uh, I guess William Carlos Williams in the American Grain um, was is kind of a uh, something that uh, uses a similar kind of framework, perhaps uh, than. Uh, the, the I don't know if all that's true in, <laughs> in Williams's uh, book, but there's definitely a, a sense of uh, writing a an attempt to write a thing which has an identity in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most of the interesting essays in the in the 20th century were written by poets. Mm. So uh, Williams definitely, Charles Olson, Ezra Pound, uh, and right now I would say Susan Howe mm. uh, is is one of the most besides being a marvelous poet, is, is one of the most interesting essays, too, and is really trying to do something with, with the essay genre. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you wrote a, a preface to her uh, book on Emily Dickinson, which is a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. It's one of those books that sort of shock you. It shocks you that it's, it's as poetic and as interesting, and it's not... Sometimes I think it's... It, as you read it, you may not think that the Dickinson... Like you're learning about Dickinson, you're kind of reading you're reading art itself. You're, you know, you're reading its own kind of a uh, poem, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it became really a, a an entirely new way of looking at at Dickinson, which which has which has had lots of ramifications. And you have this uh, wonderful book now of of um, Dickinson's envelope poems, the mm-hmm. things that she wrote on envelopes. 
that they've done facsimiles of, of the envelopes. This, this book is called The Gorgeous Nothings, mm. and they've just done a little version of it, too, um, a sort of gift version of it. Um, so the idea of, of Dickinson also as a kind of, as a visual poet, too, as much as this, as a, uh, as a lyric poet is, is quite amazing. Hmm. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest today is Elliot Weinberger, author most recently of The Ghost of Birds, a collection of essays out today from New Directions. Weinberger is internationally known as a literary essayist and translator. He also writes political essays, and these primarily appear elsewhere or everywhere but the U.S. Our break music for this segment is Dirty Whirl by TV on the radio. Stay with us. We'll talk with Elliot Weinberger about U.S. politics and why poets and other literary writers never seem to write about it. Yeah, she's gleaming like mother of Support for WFHB comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service. Now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. Let me turn in Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Uh, again, that was Dirty World. I like that song a lot. Pinned down by the... Anticlimatic f- after, the, after the musical interview. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, today's, today's show is the world at large. Our guest is Elliot Weinberger, essayist and translator, whose most recent book of essays hits the shelves today. It's called The Ghosts of Birds, and it's brought out by New Directions. Uh, our last segment, we touched on an elemental thing, which is what um, Ghosts of Birds extends a serial essay. Uh, I wanted to talk, uh, actually just mention, rather than necessarily talk about, but the in element and elemental thing is a section on the rhinoceros. And to me, it stood out as, as one uh, kind of uh, essay that has a little bit, um, I don't want to call it a moral, or a, uh, maybe it's a didacticism in some sense, right? You're, you're, you end in such a way that it's a sad essay, I guess, right? Um, it's hard to talk about the essays without having people know about them. So do you mind uh, talking a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's an essay about, about the rhinoceros, and it has the various different um, 
uh, different sections. One is the history of, of the most famous rhinoceros who, who ever lived, who, who was named Clara, who was this sort of uh, sensation in Europe in the 18th century, and there was a kind of beetle mania around this this rhinoceros named Clara, who who traveled all all over Europe and was on display in Europe, and and then created uh, all kinds of rhinoceros fashions and and things like that. Uh, another section is is about the earliest uh, uh, Buddhist sutra manuscript that is known, which is which is about um, uh, is a rhinoceros sutra, and it's and it's basically live alone like a rhinoceros. Uh, uh, keeps repeating, and then the uh, the essay uh, ends with with the extinction of the rhinoceros now, and and how their numbers are are are, are uh, vanishing from from the earth. So it's a kind of um, kaleidoscopic uh, uh, consideration of of various aspects of mm-hmm. of, of the of the rhinoceros. It would have been good for the rhinoceros to have been left alone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you give uh, I guess population statistics. You do that somewhere else. Maybe it was with the tiger. Yeah, I well. did it, and also in, a, in an essay about the tiger mm-hmm. and the sort of mythology and symbolism around around the tiger. Mm-hmm. And and that essay started because I wondered when Blake wrote "Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright" if he had ever actually seen a tiger. Uh, in a zoo, so I started investigating. You know what what tigers were available in 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 London at that and that in that moment in the 18th century, and that kind of spins out into all sorts of tiger symbolism and tiger mythology and so forth. Yeah, it's pretty good, and you, you I think again, uh, I guess a signature maybe is your your ability to move, I guess, between cultures, right? So you go from Blake's tiger to again uh, Chinese uh, tigers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and Indian. In Indian, yes. Tigers. Tipu Sultan, the, the tiger of Mysore, who, who, uh, who killed the British troops and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was rough, actually. <laughs> <So> <laughs> again, it's one of those things that, um, you know, you realize that the, the horrors of the world uh, are on repeat, I suppose. Well, that's always been the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, w- one thing I wanted to read a little bit from, too, again, this, came, this comes out of uh, The Ghosts of Birds. Uh, it's, a, I guess, a review. Is it a review of Bella, is it Balazs? Yeah, b- uh, Balazs. Yeah. Balazs, uh, The Cloak of Dreams, Chinese Fairy Tales. Um, in, excuse me, in that you write, In 1924, when radio broadcasts were just beginning, the one in Austria was less than a year old. Balazs um, imagined the birth of a new art form, the radio play, a, a theater strictly for the ears as the silent cinema was strictly for the eyes. But much like critics of the Internet today, he warned that with the whole world immediately accessible, radio would lead to a global homogenation, homogenization of culture. Worse, radio would become a chaos of disembodied voices spreading both truths and falsehoods, where, quote, the communist can pose as a fascist and the fascist as a communist, unquote, where everyone can hear everything and no one knows what to believe. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the, the well, we've almost forgotten how recent radio is. Mm-hmm. I mean, radio just begins in the 1920s, and, you know, we think of radio as, as, as kind of being there forever in, in a certain <laughs> way. And that the, the and it doesn't really become that widespread, I think, till the 1930s. Um, but the critique of radio was exactly like the, the, the critique of the Internet. There was going to be 
all of this, what we now call content, and who's going to be able to sort out what's true and what's not true. And uh, people can just pose as anybody on the radio, and we're not going to know if that's, that's who they really are and, and so forth. Um, so that's, uh, so it's quite curious that this is, that this is now repeating itself as in the critique of, of, the, uh, of the Internet. Well, it's sped up quite a bit. It's one of those things that you think, well, that makes sense. If you can't really tell who's talking, you don't know who they are. And obviously, right. radio is used for know, propaganda. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Who are are you actually? Right, which is why the, you know Donald Trump's uh, uh, tweet handle, Twitter handle, is the real Donald Trump, <laughs> the, all the other ones. Right. I think I I started one called No, this is the real Donald Trump. Oh, really? No, I didn't, but I should. Yeah, uh, let's move. Uh, as you mentioned, Trump. Uh, let's move on into politics. Uh, as I said, uh, that I thought you were probably best known as a translator, but maybe, maybe you're best known for one particular essay you wrote in 2005. What I heard about Iraq. Would you say that that's that was sort of a a boost to your fame? Uh, well, I, I, w- I wouldn't put it that way, but it it certainly uh, is is the most read uh, uh, essay that I've, that I've ever written. It was translated in more than 30 languages oh and it was sort of an a internet uh, you know, vir- viral sensation. Um, and then was used as a, as, a, um, as a protest against the Iraq war and there was a, a readings of it in a hundred different places around the world. Um, basically what I did was I did a, a kind of documentary history of, of the, the origins of the Iraq War, how we got into the Iraq War, um, as, a, as a sort of collage of, of sound bites from uh, Bush administration people, from, from uh, uh, generals, um, and as well as, as ordinary Iraqi citizens. And, uh, um, and if, it's a kind of... Um, it's a. It's basically a history of, of of the Iraq War up to that point, which was 2005. Mm-hmm. It was written. The history of the Iraq War through sound bites, which may or may not be. I mean, it's not an actual history per se. A history of how we talk about the Iraq War, or. Oh no, not it's not a history of how we right. talk about the Iraq <laughs> okay. War. It's a history of how they talked about. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So um, you have a. Uh, uh, here you uh, and it's based and it doesn't and and my personal is, uh, opinions are not overtly expressed though mm-hmm. though, though of course it's it's obvious from <laughs> right. from the context but it's basically right. quotes from Rumsfeld and Condoleezza right. Rice and Cheney and Bush and various generals and right. then and then various pundits about how we're going to be welcomed with flowers when right. we get to Baghdad and. And things like that. Um, yeah. So it's a. Uh, um, so it, no, it is a, it is a history in in mm-hmm. sense. Well, you have one. It says, "I heard the president still on vacation at his ranch say a time of war is a time of sacrifice." I heard a reporter ask him if he planned to do any fishing, and I heard the president reply, "I don't know yet. I haven't made up my mind yet. I'm kind of hanging loose, as they say." Yeah. <laughs> That's. And actually. Uh, 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 I was both, and then this turned. Uh, somebody turned it into a play mm. that that uh, that ran for a year in Los Angeles, and, oh, wow. and then toured in England, and other people turned it into dance performances and installation arts and things, which I had nothing to do with. They just, uh, you know, they just asked me permission, and anyone who asked me said I'd say yes. 
And then uh, my favorite moment was, uh, was when uh, Bush went to Germany and Angela Merkel decided to take him to her hometown. And the people in that town uh, uh, wanted to have a protest against Bush's arrival, and so their protest was a public reading of, of my text. Oh, nice. <laughs> this is Doug Storm on Interchange on WFHB. My guest is literary and political essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger. His, well, excuse me, Elliot Weinberger. His latest collection of essays is called The Ghost of Birds. We're talking politics now, and, and uh, your uh, very uh, popular and translated and read what I heard about Iraq that appeared in 2005. Um, you, you don't just put things on paper, though. Um, you, you order them, right? Uh, a part of the essay is a part of how you put it together, and uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, way to think about that particular essay, which goes on for quite a few pages. Uh, you had to decide what, what went first and what followed. Oh, yeah, right, obviously. I mean, basically, I'm using the, the techniques that, for my literary essays to, uh, to, to, uh, to write the political, political ones also. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a vast amount of information and then how you, what you decide to pick, uh, you know, and, and how you organize them. Mm-hmm. They're all literary, literary techniques. And I think the, 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 the popularity of, the, of that of that particular essay was really in the absence of any other literary text uh, protesting the war. Mm-hmm. I think during the Vietnam War, you you had so many poets who were who were uh, writing poems against the war. There was a there was a kind of flowering of of uh, anti-war poetry during that time, but the Iraq War really didn't didn't really produce anti-war texts in the same way, so uh, there was a kind of a vacuum that, that I think uh, led to, to uh, the popularity of, 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 my, of my particular text. I don't think mm. it was because it was a, a masterpiece. I think there was just, uh, there was nothing else. Right. Well, you do, you do make, um, I guess, the choice to say what I heard about, uh, which I think is an interesting, ref- you know, as it, as it continues throughout, uh, you know, I, I, what I heard about the war was this, and that's obviously a, a literary choice that, that changes a little bit of the, the style of the, of the piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because obviously I was not in, in the war. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just here uh, uh, reading and hearing all of, all yeah. of these things uh, about the war. Yeah, and how, how we uh, actually can learn about it or know about it is, is that we have to hear about it from these particular types of people. Um, let's let's move forward then to talk about uh, the the uh, po- political writing you're doing now. Also, uh, you can talk about the section in the book. Uh, there's an essay called uh, the Ramniana, which is uh, I guess a play on uh, kind of the Indian uh, books as well, right? Yeah, that's actually not in the book, though. I'm surprised you saw that. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Maybe they took it out. I've got a maybe I've got, maybe I've got an older PDF. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Strike you have that. Icky leaked version yeah. of the, of the book. I haven't shared it with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no, no Romniana in the book, but it is something you published in uh, a couple. Uh, of yeah, that was in the London Review yeah, of Books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, the uh, London Review of Books asked me to. I, I don't want to write about politics all the time because I don't. I don't want to be a pundit. Mm-hmm. But uh, every four years, they kind of drag me out of retirement to to write about the elections. So um, I wrote about uh, 
Romney versus Obama, and now I've been writing about the uh, the our, our current election. And um, what what interests me is that is that what I do is completely normal in every other country of the world except the United States. Uh, it's very unusual in the United States to have to have literary people writing about politics. Mm-hmm. Anywhere else in the world, uh, poets uh, poets have columns in the newspapers. Poets are being interviewed on radio and television all the time uh, about what's going on uh, politically and, and socially in, in, in their countries. And the United States is, is curious in that that, that rarely happens. Uh, you, if you think of our, our most famous novelists, you don't see them on the op-ed pages uh, unless they're associated with one very specific uh, uh, kind of uh, political mm-hmm. thing. But you don't see any kind of general comments. Right. Um, uh, political commentary is is the, the province of, of pundits, of journalists, of think, uh, think tank people. Yeah, well, it's an industry in itself. So, uh, but also, you, if you're a literary writer and you want to get paid, you tend to want to be commercial for the things that people like. If you come out and you're, you say something people don't like, you might not sell something. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's that as much as the fact that the, the United States is curious in that I think it's the only country that doesn't take national pride in its cultural producers. Hmm. Um, so that, for example, uh, um, uh, anywhere else in the world, uh, they know who their most famous writers are, their most famous poets. I mean, these sort of, I remember being in Bogota once, and, and the taxi driver was proudly telling me that their uh, a Colombian poet, uh, Alvaro Mutis, had just won a prize in Spain. Mm. Uh, in the United States, uh, it's rare to have a politician who could name any American writers, except for mystery writers. I mean, Obama being a great exception, of course, but, but normally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in where I live in New York City, there's no statues or things named after Herman Melville or Henry James or, or Walt Whitman or any of the great writers that lived in New York. It's kind of like imagining Paris without a statue to Balzac or, or Zola, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there should be statues of Melville everywhere. Well, well, yeah, right. <laughs> but especially in the city that he lived in. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so it's that kind of cultural pride in, in uh, kind of national pride in, in cultural producers that, that does not exist in, in the United States. I don't know. I think we've got Tom Cruise, don't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's our national culture, isn't it? That's what we export. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, but so, so that there's this kind of a split between the the political life of the country and the and the and the cultural life of the country mm-hmm. um, and very little uh, very little overlap in other places uh, for example in Mexico I, I've spent a lot of time in Mexico and I've met uh, probably four presidents of Mexico mm. and I've never met a politician in the United States no matter how lowly I mean I haven't met a dog catcher you know <laughs> um, and because the uh, the president of Mexico wants to wants to speak to writers, wants to get a sense of what's going on in the country 
through the writers mm. and through the culture. And of course, they're tremendously proud of their writers. And and uh, somebody like Paz was a was a national hero. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for Interchange. Thanks to Elliot Weinberger for joining us via phone from New York. His new book, Ghosts of Birds, The Ghosts of Birds, published by New Directions, dropped today. Thank you, Elliot Weinberger. This has been my very great pleasure to speak with you. I wish you were here so you could sign all the books I brought into the studio. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll do it by auto pen. Thanks, for, thanks very much. We'll close tonight with one more vortex of sound. This is Whirlwinds by the Brazilian band Diodata from 1974. Next time on Interchange, we'll begin a series of conversation on ne- conversations on neoliberalism in an attempt to untangle that fraught term, coined by the founding neoliberals themselves in the 1940s, but soon abandoned as perhaps too descriptive and revealing. The word lives on and now has come to define our moment, our politics, our economics, but in whose definition? And one of our conver- as one of our conversants points out, it's the water we swim in, the air we breathe, and consequently something we can't discriminate and critique from within. We are all neoliberals now. We'll start with UC Berkeley professor of political science, Wendy Brown, author of Undoing the Demos, who highlights the way the language of governance and human resource terminology, such as participation, consensus, accountability, effectiveness, efficiency, equitability, inclusiveness, serves to undermine democratic political speech by replacing it with the concept of harmonizing for the corporate good. Get on board or get bent. Attacking political speech with our guest, Wendy Brown, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. And our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie with Carl Pearson coming up right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs>